0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the History of England, episode 184, Edward's Foreign Glory. First of all, just to remind you that I'm a proud member of the Agora Podcast Network, a group of independent-minded folk who like a bit of a cast now and again. You can find out more at agorapodcastnetwork.com. This month, our featured podcast is the China History Podcast by Chris Stewart, 5,000 Years in 30-Minute Chunks. You can find Chris at thehistoryofchina.wordpress.com Do you know, it has been sad over the last many episodes. It has been sad, I have been sad, because I have fallen into a rhythm of a 100-year war conversations and since the death of the Duke of Bedford, there has been no opportunity. Either that or it's been a stream of miserable defeats. And so it is with some pleasure, ladies and gentlemen, that I'm able to start an episode talking about the good old threesome of France, Burgundy and England. Though actually, like The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, this is actually a trilogy in four parts, since we must welcome a fourth member to the story. So, give it up for Brittany. So why don't I start with a bit of a reprise of some of the territories and characters involved in all of this stuff. Let us start with Louis XI of France. Louis was born in 1423 and was therefore 47 in 1470. He had been born in Bourges. I hear you gasp. David, why? Tell us why Louis was not born in the French capital, Paris. Well, I'm glad you asked me that, because at the time, of course, Henry V had been trampling all over the French countryside. Louis' early years would have been against that backdrop. Louis was a tricky character, to put it mildly. There was something of a tradition of Valois fathers and sons not seeing eye to eye, and Louis and his dad Charles fell out so comprehensively that Louis hopped off to Burgundy to live there with Philip the Good for a while, which could be considered inflammatory. When Dad died, he went home, of course, and promptly forgot any of the Burgundian sympathies he may once have had. And at some time along the way, he acquired the nickname the Universal Spider which is a remarkably good description. He was a schemer, a plotter, a thinker, completely untrustworthy, and his objective with England was to constantly unsettle, destabilise. From his point of view, despite France's size, Burgundy and England were a constant threat, and Brittany a constant temptation. Which brings us to Duke Francis II of Brittany, born in 1433 and therefore 37 years old in 1470. Francis was the inheritor of the traditional Breton problem. How to survive with a ten-ton Breton-eating gorilla on your doorstep, namely France. The answer was to use every handle and excuse you could to play your enemies off against each other. The antagonism of France and England gave Brittany great opportunities to do just that. But also enormous dangers. Back the wrong side and they'd be toast so the Bretons were inconstant allies. One of the cards Francis held, of course, was the last of the Tudors, Henry and his uncle Jasper. When they arrived in Brittany, desperate fugitives on the run, riding hard down muddy lanes and all that sort of thing, Duke Francis welcomed them with open arms. Welcome, he said, and promised they would be treated with, quote, honour, courtesy and faveur. Welcome, he said, and promised they would be free to, quote, parse as their pleasure, to and fro without danger. Francis was, in fact, a fibber. Francis had no intention of allowing Henry, still just thirteen in 1470, to move anywhere with any freedom. In 1474, Henry and Jasper were held in the Chateau Largeau, effectively imprisoned on the sixth floor of the seventh floor chateau. The only thing Francis, in fact, could guarantee was that if he sold them, it would be for a good price. And so to Duke Charles of Burgundy, the latest in the line of Dukes of Burgundy who have had such a big impact on English and French history. Charles, had been born in 1433, had started his reign in 1467 on the death of his father, Philip the Good, and in 1468 he had married Margaret of York, Edward IV's sister, which was something of a coup for Edward. Margaret was a fierce supporter of her brother, as you might expect. Though it's worth noting that, of course, Charles was clearly driven, as he should be, by the best interests of Burgundy. It was in no way a gimme that he'd jump in the English direction in a face-off against France. Charles was a proud man and obstinate to boot. For years, he stayed away from the Burgundian court because he'd fallen out with his dad, where have we heard that before? and he simply refused to back down. Not until Philip was on his deathbed was there a reconciliation, or at least a squeezing of hands, which one took to be reconciliation rather than a squeeze of fury. He was effective and competent, but ambitious, and not always fully in control of his emotions. He was inclined to be rash, hot-headed. It's a fine question as to whether he should be known to history as Charles the Bold, which is what we tend to call him, or Charles the Rash. You can interpret the French either way. Charles was super keen to be independent from France. He was also super keen to connect his territories. I've told you this before, so no doubt you will roll your eyes and waggle your fingers in my general direction. But Burgundy was just part of his landholdings. Actually, more of it was in what we'd now call the Low Countries, Flanders in particular. Unfortunately, he had a rather disconcertingly large gap in the middle between Burgundy, and then north, the Low Countries. And that gap was owned by a chap called René, Duke of Lorraine and Bar. In the early 1470s, Edward's policy was simple and aggressive. He aimed to build offensive alliances against France, He aimed to build alliances which did not simply rely on English arms. He wanted a positive and offensive partnership to deliver his vengeance on Louis, a man he blamed for messing with England and his reign specifically. Plus, Edward was still only 30 and had Edward III and Henry V firmly in his mind as models. He was himself creating a court as glorious and as rich as any in Europe a court to rival the Burgundian court, which was the model of Europe. He took the Knights of the Garter firmly to his heart, revelling in all the ceremonies around it, and he would rebuild the Chapel of St George at Windsor, the Garter Knights' spiritual home. And he was generally a great builder, rebuilding fortresses and palaces at Calais, Nottingham, Westminster, Greenwich, Eltham and Fotheringhay. And bearing in mind that he'd walloped pretty much every army sent against him when he had a fighting chance, what better than to recreate England's glorious past by reclaiming his rightful throne? That is to say, the rightful throne of France. So, by April 1473, Brittany was lined up. Burgundy was quite close. Their demand was for Edward to give them the Lorraine and Bar if they put him on the throne of France. Sounded fine to Edward, no problem giving away what you haven't got at the moment after all. Edward now felt secure enough to go to Parliament for the cash he needed for war. Now Parliament was a little cautious to say the least. After all they'd granted a couple of bouts of taxation and then Edward hadn't done what he said he would. So this time there were strings attached and there were a couple of features of the grant that was eventually forthcoming. Firstly, it was tied to Edward going to war before the end of 1474. Until that time, the money would be collected, but it would be held by Parliament in a secret, special, safe place. And Then if the king didn't go to war, they'd give the money back to the taxpayers. The other thing is quite interesting too. I mean, it's not very interesting. And in fact, some of you may consider it to be no more than mildly interesting. Or even a little dull. But what I consider to be most diverting was that Parliament decided to levy this as an income tax rather than the normal tax on movable property. It was to be levied at the rate of 10%. Now, I read an article in a national newspaper saying that income tax was first introduced by William Pitt the Younger to help fight Boney. Well, not so, national newspaper editor person. As History of England types, we know that the first income tax was Henry II's Saladin tithe of 1188. Do we not? History of England types. And here we are again in 1474 with an income tax. The reason for it being an income tax is also interesting. Again, possibly only mildly. It was genuinely to make sure the burden of the tax didn't fall on those least able to pay to make the tax progressive. Because your big magnate... Normally, just wandered along to the king and said, Uh, king? Hello, big and important magnate. How's it hanging, dude? You know that tax everyone's got to pay. You know, so's you can go and eat croissant and wear a beret again. Yes, yes, the all-important tax all of my citizens must pay. Well, by all citizens, you don't mean me, do you? I mean, I'm far too important and hard up to pay some measly tax. And after all, that's why we have peasants, isn't it? Fair point, big and important magnate. Fair point. Here, take this exemption form and go and chillax on your estate somewhere else. It was felt by the Commons that it would be harder to do this for an income tax and that the richer you were, the more you'd have to pay so it would be fairer. For a while, it all went pear-shaped. Francis was, in effect, a complete basket case, rushing around from one side of the ship to the other, one moment flattering Louis, the other moment kissing up to Edward. Really, in the seeding committee for Most Unreliable Ally World Cup, Brittany was first on the list for number one seed. Burgundy, meanwhile, was seeded number two, spending its time thinking about Lorraine and Bar and all that sort of thing, And Edward was basically going to miss the invasion date required to get his money from Parliament. So imagine his delight when at the next Parliament, Parliament grovelled, grovelled with apology and said they were going to miss their collection dates because levying an income tax was really, really hard and they were going to revert to the old way. Which is a shame, but hey, some marks at least for trying. So... Edward looked stern and told them they'd messed up the whole thing and delayed his true and rightful restoration to the French throne, blah, 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 then went back to his solar and royal apartments and did a few fist pumps. And, as quickly as it had gone pear-shaped, the alliance suddenly revived. In May 1475, Charles the Bold was suddenly back on board, and maybe wider whispers of French rebellion helped. The head of the Armagnac family, the Duke of Nemours, was reported to be considering treason the Count of Saint-Paul, offering to sell his key towns in the north of France to the highest bidder. There was unrest in the air. Duke Francis continued to nod enthusiastically, while no one was close enough to notice that he had his fingers crossed behind his back. The plan was for Charles and Edward to meet up in Calais, armies at their back, in May 1475. Then, to Edward's horror... Charles got involved in another war, a spectacularly pointless one besieging a little place in the east of France called Neuss. Having one war might be considered bad luck, but two seemed frankly careless, to misquote. And the siege dragged on until battered and bruised, Charles had to give up, and finally met his ally Edward in July. But he didn't bring his army, because his army was knackered. So much so that Charles didn't really want Edward to see just how bad it was. Francis, meanwhile, was nowhere to be seen and would keep it that way. Now, Edward had raised 180000 quid in taxes and had one of the largest invasion armies of the entire Hundred Years' War. But he needed Charles. He needed Charles to be sure of beating Louis, though he might be able to do that himself. After all, he was the most successful general of the Wars of the Roses with bags of experience. But most of all, he needed Charles to help him win the peace. Still, Edward couldn't very well go home without firing a shot in anger. He'd look like a complete prune. Charles had the hair-brained plan that Edward should march down to the town of Saint-Quentin, where the Count of Saint-Paul was going to open the gates for them. Then towards Reims, by which time he, Charles, would have legged it all the way back east, crushed his enemies mercilessly with a series of brilliant battles and campaigns in a few short weeks, and be back in time to beat up the French. Hurrah, said so Charles, leapt on a horse and galloped off to his army in the east. So Edward marched his army down to Saint-Quentin, passing through Agincourt of glorious memory and confidently marched up to the gates to take possession of the town from the Count of Saint-Paul and received a cannonball up his backside for his pains. Yet another wheel had fallen off the plan. Now Edward and his captains were seriously in the poop. Towards the coast, the direction they'd come from, the French were devastating the countryside to remove any food Charles the Bold was boldly messing around in some other part of France and Duke Francis was playing stoolball with Henry Tudor for all he knew. At this point, two of Edward's captains, Stanley and Lord Howard, released a French prisoner from the camp. His name was Jacques de Gracy, and he'd been perplexed about being released. It had been equally perplexed when both Stanley and Howard pressed a coin to his little paw and told him to recommend them to the king. How very odd. What would you have picked up from this, if you had been King Louis? Well, they were a clever lock back then, and Louis, the universal spider, was right up there. No oil painting, it has to be said, but then beauty is only skin deep, as my granny used to say. But without doubt, a man with a brain the size of a large orbital satellite. Louis picked up from this that Edward wanted to talk. The following day, after messages flew back and forth, Dr John Morton and an English delegation met with the French. The English proposals were nice and clear. A payment of £10,000 a year, please. The French heir, the Dauphin, was to marry one of Edward's daughters. And there was to be free commerce for traders between the two kingdoms. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive & June. Olive & June gives you Now, I once went on a terribly good course where a bloke clearly demonstrated to me that in negotiations, the harder I make you work for your deal, the happier you'll feel about the deal you get, whatever the terms are. But Louis was having none of that. In the time it takes for a medieval monk to pick the lice out of his hair, he'd said, Yep, deal. Henceforth, you are my brother. All the two kings had to do was meet and shake on the deal. Not everyone was happy about this deal. Actually, Richard of Gloucester was disgusted that his brother had made such a deal and refused to have any part of it. There is in Gloucester something of the inflexible, puritanical, black-and-white, right-or-wrong sort of person, maybe surprisingly, in view of his later history. And for him, this was not the way his brother should behave. He had made a commitment to make war and recover his rights, and this was a poor do. Charles the Bold, meanwhile, was absolutely steaming. He rode into camp on the day after the deal was agreed in principle, accused Edward of treachery, taunted him with a list of great English victories in France, to which Edward would not be adding, and then furiously stormed out of the camp and went back to his own camp. Well, good golly, Miss Molly, I have to say, whatever you think of Edward's approach, Charles was hardly the man to object. Now the two kings had to meet. To achieve this, there was a bit of theatre on a bridge. Now, since the bridge of Montereau and the death of Duke John, the French had been a little wary of bridges on account of the danger of having your lower jaw cut off by an axe. So, the bridge selected was at a place called Picquigny. There was a screen set up in the middle of the bridge with a hole through which the kings would have to talk so there could be no jiggery-pokery or even pokery-jiggery. Edward strode onto the bridge in his finery watched by a sharp observer called Philippe de Comines. Quote, there were only three or four others dressed in cross of gold like King Edward, who wore a black velvet cap on his head, decorated with a large fleur de lys of precious stones. He was a very good-looking, tall prince, but he was beginning to get fat. Which is a little mean, I have to say, but hey. This time no one lost their lower jaw, the kings joked and talked and got on like a house on fire. Louis opened Amiens, to the English troops, and plied them with beer. Edward and his magnates were wined and dined, and we had the rather extraordinary, not entirely edifying sight, of Louis pressing pensions on Edward's magnates. Lord Howard got 200 quid from the French. Hastings got 1,000 marks from the French. John Morton got 600 crowns, and so on. No one saw fit to sign a conflict of interest form or anything like that. Before long, Edward was back in England. There was a certain amount of bitterness, an edge of humiliation, hate it or loathe it. Of course, if this had been the Vikings, there would have been happy celebrations of success and plans to come back the following year, but this was not the modus operandus of chivalry. The more intelligent observers noted that it was a good deal that there was peace, money and a commercial agreement for England. Fair dues. But Louis didn't help by cracking quite a high-grade gag, actually, joking that he'd driven Edward out of France with venison pasties and fine wines. And to be honest, it's difficult to maintain your dignity when connected to a pasty. Very nice and all. I like pasties very much. I have no ethical or moral objection to a good pasty. It's just that it's not very dignified. The English people had paid a lot of money. They expected glory and restoration of the pride of England, not venison pasties. A Milanese ambassador remarked that the English were furious at the Accord, quote, Cowardly as it is, because they paid large sums of money without any result. Now, if I was twelve again, I do not doubt, ladies and gentlemen, that I would agree with such folks that it was all a bit shameful. But now that I have also developed a love of pasties and fine wines, I am not so sure. For England, generally, there was a commercial treaty which opened up all the markets of France to them, to so that is better than a poke in the eye with a blunt stick thousands of people did not die in a welter of blood mud fire and misery equally better than a poke in the eye and so on edward was paid 10000 pounds a year for several years and i guess the english profited from this too since edward didn't have to go and ask them for taxation though of course they'd already invested 180000 quid in getting that 10000 quid a year not a brilliant return on investment so that's a slightly more difficult argument For Edward, I imagine the insult stung a bit, but it's difficult to know. It without doubt gave him a level of independence from Parliament that he valued very highly indeed, as events would show. Because this was really the full drawback of the Treaty of Piquigny, Edward did love his £10,000 a year. Louis kept paying £10,000 a year, and Edward bent his entire foreign policy towards keeping that £10,000 a year. Everything was then thrown up in the air in the bitter cold and ice outside the city of Nancy, in the French province of Lorraine. At the Battle of Nancy in January 1477, Charles, Duke Charles the Bold, was defeated and he himself killed, his body discovered frozen into the river, hacked and disfigured by the cuts of Swiss halberds. He left a single child and heiress, Mary of Burgundy, heir to a major empire. Her mother, Margaret, Edward IV's sister, was keen for an English marriage, but there really was nobody suitable, and Mary married a bloke called Maximilian, Archduke of Austria, a Habsburg. Of course, Louis the Universal Spider was far from welcoming to Maximilian, and used this as an opportunity to attack Burgundy. The French kings were unsurprisingly never keen about the power of Burgundy. Here was what was supposed to be part of France, and yet, with all those lands in the Low Countries, those Dukes were prattling about acting as though they were the equals of the Kings of France. Time to rub them out. So, here was the dilemma for Edward. He was super keen to keep the French pension coming in. It essentially made him independent of Parliament, and that was something to be savoured, treasured, Something to be kept warm at night, wrapped in cloth of gold, admired and petted. Something to be dribbled over when everyone else was asleep. Plus, he was super keen for his daughter, Elizabeth of York, to be married to the Dauphin. On the other hand, there was the very real danger that Burgundy would indeed be rubbed out. And if that happened, who then would stop France? But then, at this crucial point... Edward managed to tie his own hands and freedom of action. To explain why, we need to go to Scotland. This is not the first time that Scotland has been a problem for England in its relations to France. Essentially, James III of Scotland was pretty positive towards England. It was even mooted that Edward's daughter, Cecily, would marry the heir to the Scottish throne, another James. trouble is, if you think English are Bolshe then head up to Scotland and they make Warwick the Kingmaker look like Mother Teresa. James's policy, and indeed James himself, were not terribly popular. James's obsession with an English alliance, his failure to be even-handed, in fact even his love of music, reduced his popularity to rock bottom. This last one is particularly hard to fathom for a country that reached the heady heights of the Bay City Rollers. James was also hamstrung by having two brothers, the Earl of Mar and the Duke of Albany. When the Earl of Mar died in really dodgy circumstances, Albany fled for his life. Once again, here is a theme, is there not? Brothers, a problem. Anyway, so there's a bit of background, Scotland the Brave. Into this background came the normal and completely impossible to avoid, raiding and pillaging. Hopefully you remember the episode about the Reavers. The lawless life along the borders. Anyway, despite a truce, a bunch of hairy Scots came over the border. Edward complained about it. The result was a good old he said, she said, James said the English had started it, Edward said didn't, James said did, didn't, did, didn't, did, and so on. Though presumably with a little more diplomatic mathering around the edges. In the end, Edward took the big stick approach in 1480. He threatened war. James said, Yeah, you and whose army? Come on, big man, give it your best shot. By 1481, then, England was fully committed to an offensive war against Scotland, with all the raising of cash and the materiel of war that that implied. Now, Edward Third, backing in the days of his pomp, had managed to run a war in France while fighting the Scots. But that had been a defensive war. What was absolutely unthinkable was to be able to attack on two fronts, one in Scotland, one in France. No way, José. No way, Alistair. Louis must have loved it, because Louis had a brain. He could see what was going on here, that Edward could bluster all he liked, but no English army was heading over the Channel while they were going north to Scotland. And so Louis played Edward like a fish, dangling the prospect of the marriage between Elizabeth of York and the Dauphin, but always finding excuses, at the last minute, despite Edward's increasing demand for a final settlement and for the marriage to go ahead. So then, over in Burgundy, Mary and Maximilian were getting desperate as the French piled on the pressure and they needed allies fast. Edward could surely see the dangers and finally began to appreciate that this blessed marriage with the French might never be happening. But the pain, the pain of losing that £10,000 was just too much. So although Burgundy did get their treaty in 1480 with Edward, it was frankly punitive. Maximilian had to replace the French pension. He had to marry the heir of Burgundy to Edward's daughter with no dowry. And all Edward pledged in return was 6,000 archers. 6,000 archers which by 1481 Louis knew full well were nothing but vaporware. The whole thing is a monument to Edward's greed. In 1481 Maximilian stepped up the pressure on Edward for action with more than a hint of desperation that he must invade or Burgundy would be overwhelmed. But Edward was still torn and actually had started talking to Louis again, very naughtily indeed, signed a secret truce with him. Now I can see his point. While he is attacking Scotland, he couldn't go to Burgundy's help anyway, so might as well get another slug of the ten grand, but still pretty underhand. So the English invasion of Scotland went ahead, led by Gloucester and joined by the Duke of Albany. It was a substantial army that could have been as big as 20,000 men, and of course the crucial fleet, without which no invasion of Scotland could hope to win. And guess where we start? With Berwick, of course, the town that had changed hands more time than something very, very changeable. Faced with 20,000 men, the town of Berwick opened its gates and Gloucester left a force to besiege the castle and headed north into Scotland. The familiar pattern followed. The Scots couldn't compete with an army the size that the English could raise, so they retreated before it. But once at Edinburgh, the English couldn't go any further, unable to supply their army. Anyway, by July, Gloucester had taken Edinburgh and that was all very satisfactory up to this point. But now Albany used this success to jump ship back to the Scots on his own terms, leaving Gloucester high and dry. Gloucester made terms with the Scots, demanding a royal marriage and the permanent ownership of Berwick, but then retreated back to England before the terms could be driven through properly. It was all a bit unsatisfactory, essentially. There's some evidence that Edward gave Gloucester something of a tongue-lashing for coming back to England before the job was really done. But really, it's Edward's strategy that was at fault. While all this was going on, Burgundy was suffering. However, before I go on, let me make one point. In 1482, the castle at Berwick surrendered, and that, ladies and gentlemen, is the last time that Berwick changes hands. We have passed another landmark on our journey towards the end of history. Berwick is now officially 100% forever English. Welcome, Berwick and on the altar of these largely unsatisfactory outcomes to the Scottish campaign, it turned out that Edward had sacrificed his influence over European affairs. On the 27th of March, 1482, Mary of Burgundy died after falling from her horse. Maximilian, facing revolt from his provinces, had no choice but to come to terms with Louis. The Treaty of Arras was a Grade A, honest to goodness, no poo disaster for Edward. Through its terms, without wanting to simplify things too much, the configuration of Europe changed. The Duchy of Burgundy was indeed rubbed out and became part of France again. The Low Countries remained in Maximilian's hands, and in the fullness, continental politics became dominated by the rivalry between France and the Holy Roman Empire, between Valois and Habsburg. To cap it all, by seeking so hard to hold on to his £10,000 a year, Edward lost it along with the Burgundian counterweight to France. Louis had no need any more to keep Edward on a string until he stopped the payments. Edward's diplomacy yielded precisely a zip. Edward's foreign policy gets pretty much hammered by historians and for good reason. None of this was particularly cleverly executed. Edward wavered about, appearing to worry much more about money than the big picture. But before we march through the streets of London with banners condemning the man, it's worth reflecting one point. Essentially, Edward avoided a big fight with France and in the later years 1475-83 to he made sure he avoided getting dragged into continental wars. Welcome to England's new foreign policy to be pursued with first determination by his successors. Henry V might have been glorious and all that but he filled more breaches with English dead and drained more treasure of gold than did Edward and in the end came up with the same result. Oakley, Oakley, that's enough for one week. Next week, we will have a general catch-up of the reign of Edward IV, which only leaves it to me, lords and ladies, to thank you for all your kind attention and to thank those of you who have donated, such as my faithful and most laudable monthly donators, Henry, MacRack, Ross, Simon and Alan, and also those generous souls who have donated this week, Claire and Erica. Thanks, everyone. Good luck and have a great week.